This is episode 28 of the What's Up podcast, recorded by Old Rookie Astro on the 24th of August 2018. Today's panel is myself, Martin. William, hello. And I'm Ali. Uh, and today we're going to do the speed episode of the podcast. That does not say we're going to speed it and talk faster than we normally do. We wouldn't put you through that. But we're going to cover a bunch of different stories that have caught our eye in the news, all of which relate to things traveling at different speeds. So the first thing we're going to talk about is how fast Ali can go on his recent holidays. So Ali, tell us about your holiday. Um, I have just had a coffee, so if I do go too fast, then you'll let me know. I'm slightly jet lagged because I literally got off the plane yesterday. Um, This took me to various places in the States I had a wedding to go to, but I did a classic nerdy thing and sought out as many spacey places as I possibly could. So I did New York, uh, Washington, D.C. and Chicago. And in New York, they have a museum called the Intrepid Sea, Air and Space Museum. In Washington, D.C., it was the Air and Space Center, the Smithsonian. And then in Chicago, it was the Museum of Science and Industry. And I spent a day in each of those just walking around and going, oh, ah, ooh. Um, I wasn't moving very fast at the time, but so... My top speed would have been whatever my Dreamliner did on Norwegian Air. <laughs> uh, very nice flight it was too. Um, but those museums were fantastic because uh, I think one of my favourites was in DC. Because have anyone has anyone done the? I, yeah, I've been to the DC place. I I was a bit sad because the Columbia module, the one that Neil Armstrong uh, and Buzz and Mike Collins were in, was not there. Um, because I think it's getting renovated because it's about to do a little tour, given that it's got a birthday coming up. It has a big Um, birthday. But they have many other shiny bits of kit there. And one of the things that surprised me the most was how big Voyager was. Like, it's feckin' massive. Yeah. Um, Pills and rooms. It was really impressive. (laughs) I was kind of like, oh my God, I've been in my head when somebody says, oh, it's kind of bus sized. And you're kind of like, yeah, yeah. And I think mentally I've been shrinking Voyager down when I talk about it. And then I was like, okay, it's it's actually quite chunky. Um, And then they have other strange things like the the Skylab um, that's like a converted Saturn 4B fuel tank that they put astronauts in and it looked kind of 2001-ish it was that kind of a space station so yeah. you get to walk through the existing one that they still have so little things like that kind of made me very excited about all this stuff and they've also got some chunks of hubble there as well which i was uh, just again <gasps> hubble was bigger than oh, i remember yeah you hubble's know, huge. was it 1.2 diameter primary yeah, mirror and i think we often particularly because we're always talking about the next big space telescope so we're always like oh hubble's only 2.4 is big mm. put it in space it looks huge huge um, yeah. so yeah and and impressive. then you've got the uh, the natural history museum i couldn't believe how many meteorites they have and, and i spent ages in the rock and gem bit and you know that way where you get museum fatigue <laughs> so i spent ages reading everything and then i was uh, i kind of done on rocks and gems now uh, and that collection was amazing and then i got to the meteorite room and i was like crap i'm gonna need a coffee to get through the rest of this <laughs> but they have hundreds of meteorites really weird ones and and you know thin sections and loads of good information on it and that, that's the most meteorite happy place i've ever been to so that was very cool um, I, I don't know what my favorite thing of all of them was i think chicago has the one that won for me which was the apollo 8 command module that's literally the first human thing with people in it to ever leave low earth orbit and so that was jim lovell and bill anders and they got the earth rise picture and everything so that for me is Probably the coolest human mission we've done, I think. It was, I think it was one of the riskiest. You're going cooler than Apollo 11. Apollo 11 was cool, but... It walked that, on the moon. It was, but it was literally the first time they'd ever flown a Saturn V. I still can't believe there were humans the, on top the of that. The safety and, implications of that are still I mean, yeah, preposterous. Did, did, we wouldn't do that no. these days, I don't think. But the Saturn V was so big, like compared to modern rockets. It's so chunky. 
and so expensive that they just didn't have the option of throwing up as many test flights as they wanted. So that's one heck of a risk. Yeah. Uh, and then to sort of do that and then come back and have these fantastic sort of, yeah, we can do it, it's all fine. Uh, and then landing on the moon was just a, an engineering problem. <laughs> it's just catering. <laughs> so uh, so that was very cool. And so I took lots of geeky pictures. I'll try and find a couple that maybe can maybe tie into the podcast or something. But as long as I don't get in trouble for museums for uploading things, I should True. be able to. Right. That was very uh, cool. Although for the record, we should say, in case your family are listening to this, your favourite part of your trip was, of course, going to your family wedding uh, and not the museums. Yes. So they, they had to tote my kilt around for all of these different places as well. And then uh, to cap it off, I got to go past Iceland on the way home and Iceland, Northern Lights territory, but we are kind of in the middle of summer, so not so good. And it was cloudy for the two nights that I had in Iceland. So I need to go back to Iceland. Yeah. yeah. Um, now I was going to try and do a loose tie into news stories as well because yep. I, I wasn't I was kind of on holiday from work but I was still reading stories and everything but there was that big one from last month that we haven't talked about that we need to talk about yep. which yep. is ice and water and all things connected to it do you want to um, do a, try and tie it into the slow moving stuff to, well, so, or are you just mentioned being in Iceland so I'm sure that you, you know, inspired ah, by your trip to yeah. Iceland okay. you're going to talk about a different area of ice on land on Mars. Yeah, I like it. It's the reason you guys pay me to be here. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, so I have seen a glacier from a distance now, so I was quite impressed with that. Um, but no, the, the, this is actually a watery story, and rarely <laughs> do we get to talk about actual liquid water on Mars. So that was the story. It popped up on mm, the BBC were like clickbaiting it, and they were kind of like, liquid yeah. water found on Mars. And I instantly went, oh my God, <laughs> what have they found? Some spring of water that's shooting out into, into Mars space or something? But it was actually kind of cooler than that in a way um this is an instrument on board i think i find a geezer on the surface of mars would 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 be well but a geezer's transient kind of thing and oh, uh, so the the, okay. the whole reason this watery marsy story was interesting because we've known water's been on mars for a long time now we've got loads of different evidence most of the water that exists on mars is locked up in the the, the polar caps uh, and it's got a sort of layer of carbon dioxide frost on top of it um but mars is by and large very dry we know it had a wet past but right now not so much uh, and so the reason this story is interesting is because, yes, the water is liquid, but also it seems to be stable as well because it's buried one and a half kilometers underneath uh, surface layers uh, where the conditions are enough to keep it liquid. And it means the water has to be salty because it's still very cold, um, but you have a significant amount of water. It's about 12 kilometers across or something. And they don't know the exact depth. Um, and we'll get on to how they know it was there in the first place but that's a big body of water that could potentially sustain life or be somewhere that you would want to protect and make sure we we don't mess up just in case there's any martian microbes or anything hanging around down there so that was a yeah an interesting story um and i think we've talked about water on mars before maybe we have we brought up the martian gullies before that that was an interesting story um so on various different craters and through various different orbital probes you can sometimes see evidence of recent flows coming down from the walls of these craters and they sort of spread out a little bit and there's a little bit of debate of whether or not that's actually liquid water that's bubbling up onto the surface uh, or if it's just dust uh, or carbon dioxide and whatever explanation is there that's still transient stuff so even if it was liquid water which is still very interesting it's not hanging around you know it's sort Mm -hmm. of appearing flowing and then vanishing quite quickly because there's no atmosphere to hang on to so this uh long-lived body of water is potentially very interesting and they found it with an instrument on 
Mars Express, which is the ESA mission that's been around Mars for a long time now. <laughs> Launched in 2003, I think. And they were taking data with this um, the Marsis radar instrument, um, which, while well, we're on the subject of chunky probes, uh, needs two 20-metre booms. Uh, so that's the, the antenna uh, that it uses. So they got extended once it got to Martian orbit. And that's what it uses to bounce um, radio signals off of the surface of Mars. From either end of the... The boom. Uh, well, the boom itself acts like one big antenna, so you bounce the signals down to the surface ah, and you, okay, right, you wait sorry. for the reflections. Uh, I did look up what Mars has stood for. It's something like Mars Advanced Radar and Ionosphere Sounding something instrument. Um, that, that's pretty chunky. 20 metres. Yeah, and it's it's been fun because it's kind of a unique instrument in that way, and it's capable of actually penetrating a couple of kilometres below the surface. Um and what you get is you get kind of it's kind of just like sonar on submarines you're you're sending out a pulse of something and then you're watching for your reflections and depending on how strong your reflections are that tells you what the ground's made of so really useful because it allows you to just penetrate the martian surface and actually see what the heck's going on um and what i didn't realize is that icy surfaces and dry cold surfaces don't reflect radar signals strongly at all so you get a tiny little echo back um, and the size of that echo kind of tells you what the surface is made of, and you can actually map layers through the surface by just looking at all of these echoes that come back. But if you have liquid water, you get a really strong signal um, just because of the electric properties of liquid water. Uh, and so that's what they've been seeing for quite a long time. Apparently, they've been looking at this data for about five years, and they've been sort of sitting on this and just making sure is definitely what we think it is. Is it definitely water down there? Um, and so they were getting this really strong return from one and a half kilometers down. But the instrument itself was working against them. The, it was averaging over um, a few observations and sort of summing everything together. And this region is relatively small in, yeah, in, in relation to the size of Mars. What size are we talking? And 12 kilometers across, I think, or was it 20? It's, you know, it's not small, but in terms of what the probe is seeing... Um, at any one time, it's not a huge region on the surface. So pretty tiny, really. The signal was Little actually lake. getting swamped depending on what angle they were coming at it from. And then they figured out a way to bodge their own instrument to tell it to stop doing that and just give them raw data. Because <laughs> it was something to do with how much data they can give to Mars Express to send home, basically. Mm -hmm. So they were kind of averaging to save a bit of, of bandwidth. Um, so they managed to throw that out and actually store higher resolution data equivalently. Um, and then they saw this signal again and again and again in different orbital passes. And they were able to build up this uh, very confident region where they're like, nope, that's that's definitely a, a liquid water signal. And it can't really be anything else. They're, they're, they're happy with that announcement. So I'm, I'm OK with that, too. Uh, this was actually an Italian um Thing. So all of the names on the paper are Italian sounding names, which sounds very cool. And they still have more that they can do with this instrument because Mars Express is still trucking. Um, but this was quite nice just for that. So that was the water story. And it was quite exciting. That but it's not be. like oh, we're be. not drilling down anytime soon to take a sample of this because one and a half kilometers down is it's not easy to get to. No, not easy to get to on Earth. Uh, <laughs> alone. No, that's a I good mean, point. I, I think, you know, Bruce only managed to get to, what, 800 meters on his asteroid in... Uh, now we're in. Yeah. <laughs> and that was that was pretty pretty fraught with difficulties i recall yes yeah. yes i mean and the yeah. scientific accuracy of armageddon as a film should never ever be questioned yes no yeah. Yeah. So we, one should, we could dedicate a whole podcast to armageddon and i, I feel we're, very I we strongly that we should we're not going to i'm not i'm not watching that film again i think uh it's also interesting what you say about the fact that 
we wouldn't want to drill in, even if we could. I mean, obviously, the scientific curiosity would be like, yes, let's do it. But because it might potentially have something pristine in it, we would have to be jolly careful, wouldn't we, about yeah, not well, contaminating there's it. There's an analogy with, is it Lake Vladivostok here, where they know there's liquid water that's not seen mm. <laughs> the surface uh, for a very long time. And people are still so. arguing about how you drill into that and... Um, preserve a pristine environment without contaminating it with your drilling fluid and um, so that I think there's still a debate going on so you would obviously want to preserve that as much as possible but you still also want to see what the heck is going on in there as well because potentially some really interesting science to be done down there too um, this also ties into another watery icy story with the moon too this was a more recent one before you can I just want to ask a question mm. like, so they found this 12 kilometer pool puddle like um, yeah, they don't know how deep it is. No. They just see that reflection. So, is it is how much of the surface have they scanned? I mean, is it possible that there are lots of these and they've only looked at a small fraction, or is it basically this is the pool? Um, um, it's possible that higher resolution mode means uh, they can't okay. do as much of the surface as quickly as they would like to. Um, but I have a feeling that's exactly what they're going to do now, and they'll they'll probably find smaller deposits if yeah. they look harder. Kind yes, of thing. they've but got higher resolution. This is their biggest, see, most yes. obvious one yeah. that they found so far. So there might be more. Yeah for sure mm. um and yeah i think it's it's going to be a story that evolves but i guess another yeah. one of those things it's just another box that's now been ticked that mm. mars does still have liquid water on it today which yeah. is actually quite nice um and then whether or not you want to speculate about geysers and <laughs> random <laughs> ways of getting that water to the surface when we drill in yeah but, yeah well i mean those gullies i mean essentially the same what you're seeing in those gullies if that is liquid water is ground water that's yes, managing to seep up, up. Yeah, so that that process may still be going on in other places as well so yeah. it's very interesting stuff sorry you can go with the moon Oh, yeah. I I didn't read up on this one so much, but it's the, I'm going to pronounce this wrong, but the Indian lunar probe Chandrayaan 1 had an instrument that um, had tentative evidence for water ice in the moon's uh, most shadowed craters at the poles. Mm -hmm. So these are craters where they literally see no sunlight ever or haven't for a very long time. And it's a perfect place where you can maybe contain water ice and have it remain as water ice and not get blasted by sunlight and evaporate away. And they've reanalyzed some of the data from that probe and they've now, um, they, they think they've secured that, that there is a lot of water ice at the moon's um, uh, shadowy crater regions as well. So about 4% of the regions that are in shadow um, have a, a significant amount of, of water ice in there too. So um, it's interesting because most of the water signals on the moon you do get a bit of water throughout um, lunar soil, and some of it can even be created by sunlight, which I thought was quite interesting. So solar radiation hitting the lunar surface can react with oxygen-rich stuff in the lunar dust and actually create little bits of water everywhere. Um, but north of sort of 20 degrees, so when you get up to the polar regions, you see a stronger water signal. And in these craters, that's where it's strongest. So if you were going to send a, a human mission and you wanted to mine some water to A, stay alive with, and B, make rocket fuel with and save mass and therefore money, uh, then these craters might be a fun place to go and visit as well. And then we would have to argue about how you preserve those pristine environments as well. Um, but well it's, we've, it's, we've already contaminated the moon. It's fine. Um, Let's just go with it. That's just, true. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I found out a weird fact, which is that the lunar module, when you land on the surface of the moon, uh, there was enough kick up of that lunar dust that that dust has kind of gone everywhere. So you could argue... Um, oh, really? Like the the whole lunar surface will have tiny amounts of dust that was kicked up by the lunar landers as they landed. So that's that's how tenuous uh, dust um, 
it's how you can get that sort of dust to just sort of propagate around yeah. the whole planet. So it's pretty hard because there's no atmosphere to sort of slow down the particles. So, so they will you just will get tiny drift. amounts everywhere. Yeah, um, mm. so I thought that was quite interesting. Would they? I wonder. I suppose we couldn't guarantee, but would they have any contamination? Or I mean, as in, do they have any microbes? Material which has come from Earth would have survived. Um, uh, I think. Or, you know, well, the, for sure. On the base of the. Have you heard of the Surveyor probe? That was one of the ones that NASA landed. And the reason Apollo 12 is such a cool lunar mission is because they literally parked next to Mm. where Surveyor touched down. And they brought back some of the instruments that were on Surveyor and studied them and found out that the bacteria had quite happily survived. Uh, Even though it's in sort of kind of deep hibernation, it had maintained itself. And we've also been crashing Saturn 4B boosters. And Chandrayaan actually had a lunar impactor. Yeah. Um, and I mean, those four Bs, when we were crashing them into the moon, we were measuring lunar quakes from the seismometers that astronauts had placed. It was kind of cool. Um, but I'm pretty sure you can't decontaminate a Saturn 4B easily, nor did we have good decontamination protocols back then. So it's, we've probably peppered a lot of the lunar surface. <laughs> nor did we care back then. Yeah, a little yeah. bit. I mean, even these days, it's still very hard to guarantee your probe is microbe free. Because it yeah. takes off through the atmosphere mm-hmm. and there's potential for atmospheric mm-hmm. gases to seep into wherever you're trying to keep clean. Yeah. So, um, and presumably it's also quite hard to decontaminate a person. In, well, it's, it's, it's hard to put them in like a, yeah. a gamma ray chamber. Like, I can see how you can like blast your spacecraft with, mm. with, with radiation to kill most things. But, you know, we'd probably be a bit unfair on the astronauts. Um, yeah. So, so. And, and then you've got natural, natural processes too, because those meteorites, we've got Martian meteorites now. And I spoke to a meteorite person who said, uh, we can't 100% say that those rocks are from Mars, but the, it's the best match that we've got from our Martian probes. Um, you can analyze the rock composition mm-hmm. and it, it's almost an exact match to these things. So they're most likely to be from Mars. And that's, it's just a sign that the entire solar system can spread um, the equivalent of germs around when they get smacked into by other big rocks. So these things can can propagate. Um, which raises the question, where's the other life? Where is it? Uh, well, which question. is the, yeah, something I suppose, which is the whole point of trying to find a lake. <laughs> uh, yeah. And hopefully some fish. No, not fish. Um, so we were, we were doing speed, right? So where mm. do we go from my crappy speed that I got up to on my Dreamliner? Well, we can move swiftly onto the um, recently launched Parker Solar Probe. Nice. So I think this has got a fair bit of news coverage um, because of where it's going. And it is flying, currently it is flying towards the sun. And this is going to be our first solar probe to what they're referring to as touch the sun, which isn't uh, quite true. That's ugly. I yeah, I don't like it. No. But what I should point out I'm is... I'm enjoying it. <laughs> it is getting far closer to the sun than anything has in the past. It's going to get within about 7 million kilometres, just under 7 million kilometres from the surface of the sun in its closest pass. Uh, which, help me out, what is that in solar radii or, or like, is it 1% there? I, I, or think, it's, I think it's about 6. Distance. Yeah. I don't remember. Okay. 6 solar radii. It's a few cool solar radii. So it's, it's pretty, it is pretty close. Okay, man, we're at 150 million. Um, yeah, yeah, 150 okay. million. Don't make me Wikipedia. Kilometres <laughs> from the sun. Yeah. And this, this is getting within 7. Okay. Yeah, I see what you're saying. Yeah, it's pretty yeah. close. Yeah, it's, it's, getting, cool. it's getting pretty close and pretty toasty down there as well. Yeah, and I suppose like, the sun doesn't have a, like, it doesn't have a nice surface which you touch. So no. it's quite a nebulous-y thing. So I suppose touching the sun, maybe I should mm, retract yeah. my earlier criticism. Maybe, maybe it's all right. And it's worth keeping okay. in mind, of course, that the, the surface of the sun isn't the hottest point. Yes. But it is the corona, which is a few, well, I'm going to say a few million kilometres, a couple of kilometres above the yeah. surface. That's where it gets really hot. And okay, Parker still isn't going to that, but it is going to be exposed to 
about 1,500 degrees Celsius at its front in its closest pass, which is about the same as the tip of a blowtorch, <laughs> yeah. but for a long time. I mean, this mission That's impressive. Is, You're yeah. going to have a good sun shield for that. Yeah, yeah it's got one hell of a parasol. <laughs> um, so this is a sort of multi-layer um, sun shield that's been built up, which has sort of basically like air volumes in it. Um, like if you've ever made a baked Alaska, and you've got a ma- <laughs> like, uh, was that, was that macaroon around your ice cream in the middle. That, the ice cream melts. <laughs> not if you do it right. <laughs> um, because you, you use the air inside the macaroon to protect the ice cream inside because the air is really good at preventing heat getting through. It's how your mm. double-glitz windows work, that kind of thing. Um, that's the kind of idea, and that's what they're doing here, but on a super scale. Um, I mean, this thing is a really impressive sun shield that's designed to keep the thing cold. Or cool, I should say. So I was wondering when I read about it, how the heck the instruments work. You know, are they on like little arms where they just sort of peek out and see the sun for a bit and go, and then come back in really quickly? Or are they just designed to be staring at it from around the heat shield? So there's about four or five instruments on board, Mm -hmm. a couple of which are multi-purpose ones. Um, And it varies because a lot of the research they're doing is more looking, it's not looking at the sun so much as looking at the solar wind and looking at the solar corona. So it doesn't have anything directly pointing at the disc or anything? Well, it does. So there are little little (laughs) antennas and things that poke out from behind the sun shield. Um, into this or directly and it will pick up signals but it's just antennas and it's just like particle catchers that kind of thing all the sort of electronics and all the sensitive parts are behind the sun shield so, so it's cooled imaging as well is there is an imager but it's not pointing at the sun right okay it's pointing away from the sun so this is the idea when you sort of go around the sun you can take images of coronas uh, sorry of uh, prominences and solar um, uh, uh, solar mass ejections as they go away from the sun yeah Okay. Um, so we've got you, plenty of things pointing at the sun, the Soho, there's yeah. stereo, those kind of things. But it's so much closer. Like yeah. The resolution you could get on the surface, quote, surface, would be phenomenal. Yeah. But, but presumably, yeah, if you point a telescope at it, you're going to fry it. You would fry it instantly. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Okay. A fun conversation in a room full of optical engineers. <laughs> so we want to point a big telescope at the sun. No. Nope. <laughs> <laughs> I wonder, is, it, is there any chance? Um, I'm getting carried away preempting what you're about to say, probably. But um, in the same way that like Cassini, at the end of its mission, you're like, okay, we're done. We're just going to crash into the atmosphere of Saturn and get as much data as we mm-hmm. can on our last rope. Is there any, can at the end of the mission, can you just go, right, we're going to go turn off. <laughs> we can get like two seconds. Of- I, I suspect, I wouldn't surprise me if they did. That's what I would do. Let's yeah, put it that way. Yeah. It's a seven year mission that's got planned and the way they're getting closer to the sun. So it gets closer to the sun, the longer the mission goes on. And the way they're doing this is by gravity assist around Saturn, uh, around Venus. So the orbit takes it like past the sun, past Venus, past the sun, past Venus on every so often. And every sort of, it must be slowing down and thus getting closer to the sun each time. All right, so it does a gravity desist. I think so. No, it must be be speeding up. Getting to the sun is weird because now you want to bleed off speed because... It's pretty surprising. Yeah, yeah, imagine like a big big valley, so a massive hill, you're on a bike with no brakes because brakes mean fuel in spacecraft terms. So you have a bike with no brakes and you want to stop at the bottom of your hill, but you're going to go and come straight up the other side. Maybe not quite as high because you've got a bit of friction, but with spacecraft, that's even harder to do. So Mm. those gravity assists, you've got to slow down a little bit. And you can gradually but, but, get yourself closer and closer and tweak. Um, but this but, is but this is a the, big well that we're talking about. But here. they're desists. In the sense um, of like normally we use gravity assists to kind of give our spacecraft going out to deep space a little bit. Oh, I see kick. what you mean. They, oh, they, they effectively yeah. nab a little bit. We, we the, might get in trouble from NASA engineers by calling it a desist. <laughs> <laughs> but you know what I mean? Generally, we use these things to, to speed yeah. up our craft a little mm. bit. Whereas instead, 
that we're, we're actually using it to slow down. Exactly. Uh, and you're actually speeding up Venus ever so slightly by <laughs> doing that. Just a smidge, yeah. 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 Crikey. It's pretty cool. Look yeah. at us, polluting Mars, contaminating the moon, but isn't slowing where, down Venus. It's isn't this where it becomes like no, a... Speeding up. Uh, it's going to be a record-breaking speed yep. thing, isn't it? So, like, crazy fast? 700 million... Sorry, no, 700,000 kilometres per hour is going to be the peak speed that it reaches. I'm so glad you looked at it. <laughs> so, hang on, that's around the Earth in... What the Earth like forty thousand? I am too jet lagged to do maths. No. <laughs> so <laughs> fast, yeah, like, yeah. yeah. It's, I mean, it's four hundred and thirty thousand miles five, an hour. Four, four minutes. So I mean, it's to yeah. get around the Earth, something like that. Yeah. Whoa! So far, while it's at the bottom of these orbits, it, it's going crazy fast yeah. and beats everything else that we've yeah. ever launched, kind of thing. Yeah, but it's worth pointing out this is like an instantaneous speed. It will hit this for a very short period of time. It's not as if it's going to be continuously travelling at that speed. Because it'll be slowing down as it gets further yeah. from the sun again. Okay. Yeah. So it's a record breaker at that moment. It will be the fastest man-made thing ever. ever. Excellent. <laughs> is that the fastest man-made space probe? Uh, I think... Uh, oh, is it, I have a funny uh, feeling there's... Uh, yeah. Well, because the, the, the probes, is it Voyager is the current record holder, I think? Yeah. Um, no, I think it's something like Hel- Helios... But some it depends how you, it depends from how you, the seventies. Yes, Helios, okay. Helios A, and B, a or or B. They did a similar. They went close to the sun, but not yeah. as close. This one's going to go. So they got a, the similar idea. Ah, but so they're not active gonna, anymore. No, so no, sorry, no, I was no, okay. No. Um, but the it's you can define it in a couple of ways, can't you? Because relative to the sun, um, Parker's going to win. But then you've also got to care about uh, how much above escape velocity you are. So that speed also matters as well, because you can't leave the solar system unless you've exceeded that. So um, yeah, there's a few different ways of winning. Plus there's, uh, was it Cassini? I can't, or no, New Horizons. Did it not win the fastest after launch chemical yes, mission so. as well? So it was the fastest literal leaving the Earth speed mm-hmm. that we were able to give to a spacecraft yeah. as well. So I need to double check if that's still right. There's lots of different ways you could define this, but at one Doesn't point, matter, all cool. this will be the fastest. <laughs> <laughs> but we talk about how fast this thing is going. This pales in comparison to the things in our next story. Yes, it does. Absolutely pale. Nice Uh, segue, sir. Yeah. (laughs) So our next story is about a star orbiting a supermassive black hole in the centre of our galaxy. Um, So this thing, if we just go straight to the numbers, um, has got up to about 2.5% the speed of light. Cha-ching! So um, I think that was 20... 10 to the 5 kilometres per second. Yeah. I I think it was like 28 million kilometres of an hour does that sound about right it's it's fast massively fast um so the the story here is that um as people may well be aware there is a supermassive black hole lurking or we believe there is a supermassive black hole lurking in the center of our galaxy um, actually, i shouldn't say lurking it's the sort of thing people say black holes and i hate it it's kind of they idea do, that some lurk, ominous presence they? which lurks and no, absorbs and it's, sucks it's, things in and it's, it's like no it's chilling. just it's, it's just just, just a chunk of mass <laughs> sitting there um Four, four million solar masses? Is that the current some, figure? That's the current estimate. It ain't, it ain't um, light. And one of the best bits of evidence we have for the fact that this thing is there is the fact that you see stars um, orbiting it um, and you see them orbiting at incredible speeds. So in exactly the same way as the mini little solar probe goes trundling off towards the sun, speeds up and goes whizzing around and, and you get that kind of yeah, highly elliptical orbit effectively where, well, it's not highly elliptical for um, Parker, but you know, it speeds up as it goes in closest, then it slows down a bit and comes out again. Um, you get something very similar um, with these stars. But the thing is, this is a star. This is something which is already huge, traveling at a phenomenal speed. Um, and yet it, it's in an orbit, which means there must be something 
there, which is considerably more massive than the than the star in the same way that you know the sun is considerably more massive than Parker, so it holds it in place in its mm. orbit. You've got to have this huge quantity, and we estimate it at about four million solar masses. So four million times the mass of our sun, which is constrained in an area which we're still trying to define. We're still not quite understood how large it is, but we think it's probably about well. Actually, how on earth am I going to say this? Because even defining the size of a black hole is hard. But we think the Schwarzschild radius is about the size of Mercury's orbit, I think. Yeah, so that's, um, the, that's the radius where even if you're going as fast as the speed of light, you won't leave again. You'll, yeah. you'll fall into the black hole eventually. So it's the um, closest sort of way you can define the size of So a black I'm guessing hole. this star doesn't come close to that. It no. must be quite so far, I would it say. Gets a, uh, the distance from the star to the black hole is a sort of uh, about three or four Pluto... Earth sun, uh, Pluto, sorry, Pluto sun distances. Okay, so so, so you know it's sort it's of not crazy it's far away. Close. It's yeah. kind of solar okay. system scales, um, and at that distance, you know, it really, really accelerates significantly. Um, obviously, and and comes around I think every fifteen years or so. So we have seen it do an orbit a close approach before, but one of the nice things this time is that they have uh, basically w- almost with this case in mind, particularly studying the central galaxy, they've been building a piece of kit. Called, called gravity, because um, it's assessing gravity. It's a good name. Um, <laughs> and that has been on Sky for the last couple of years, almost with this particular pass, because, you know, it was something we saw 15 years, we can, we've been able to calculate this orbit and say, right, this is coming back. Um, and so they've, been, they, they've built this piece of kit, which is, going on the, which is on the very large telescope down in Chile. It's a glorious uh, new kind of uh, instrument, which is able to get very, very precise positioning measurements of things. Um, it's... It's a little bit like we've spoken a lot about Gaia, which is this spacecraft which is mapping the sky and it's able to get positions of bright nearby stars. But it's generally Gaia is doing the nearby stuff. If you and want to this see, is not nearby. This is not nearby. It's 26,000 light years away. It's in the centre of our galaxy. And it is also massively obscured because as you look towards the middle of our galaxy, it's really dusty. Um, and so you can't actually see it in the visible. So this thing is operating in the infrared. Um, and this means that it, you know, it's damn hard and it's faint because it's quite obscured. So you have to have the collecting light gathering power of the four very large telescopes. So four eight meter telescopes all working in tandem, all operating at the same time, pointed at this very faint smudge in order to be able to see it, which is just amazing. I mean, technically mm-hmm. speaking, okay, I think the science is obviously brilliantly exciting. You're looking at a star around a black hole, but the technology to do it is pretty cool. I'm going to read the description from the ESO website. Reading's um, cheating. <laughs> I need to. <laughs> Uh, um, so this is says gravity is almost an all-in-one device it is a four-beam combiner near-infrared adaptive optics assisted fringe tracking astrometric and imaging instrument um which is a lot of jargon a lot of jargon Um, uh, yeah which i I got about a quarter of that (laughs) yeah which i'm not going to begin to try and go into too much detail about but but basically it's able to combine the light from the four telescopes and it effectively uses a, a property of interference where you, you kind of look how the light is um, interfering from each telescope. <laughs> how it's adding up. How it's adding up and subtracting as, it, as, it, as the light comes in from the different telescopes in order to create an image. And the thing that's really cool with this as well, it uses um, a bright star nearby as a reference in order to get more precise uh, alignment of, from the different telescopes mm-hmm. effectively. So it's an, that's the adaptive optics part, um, which allows you to get this awesome precision where you're able to measure things down to tiny fractions on the sky. So 
they are able to measure, this thing takes 15 years to go around, they can measure the movement of it in a day. <laughs> so they look from night to night and they actually see the stars moving on the sky, which is amazing. Mm, that is um, so yeah, well done to, I mean, these guys have been working on this for Am I right ages. in thinking as well, they got an extra test of Einstein out of this one star as well? Yes. Yeah, so this is the, in some ways, is the really cool bit that um, the predictions from general relativity are that if you're near a massive object, you should see effects of uh, gravitational redshift. So light emitted from that object should change color um, in the same way that, you know, a speeding fire engine has a change in pitch. It also has a change in color. Next time you see a fire engine, look at it closely and it's actually... <laughs> Redder mm. when it's moving away from you, you you're not going to see it. Um, so that one's that one's Doppler, but so that's Doppler, this and is, you you do see that in stars because they wobble all the time. Um, we look at that a lot. So they must have quite a strong Doppler signal yeah. for this Sagittarius A star but, star. But this thing is the um, gravitational effect. So effectively, uh, damn hard I, to explain. Well, I would but, like it's like light has to work harder exactly. to leave. A deep potential of gravity. Yeah. So it loses a bit of energy because it's kind of climbing up a hill. Uh, and I'm, yeah. I think I'm being yes way too coarse with that, but that's kind of in my head. That's that's the distinction. So you... Yes. The other way I've heard it described <laughs> is that it's the f- fact that effectively clocks go slower when you're in a deep gravitational oh, potential. Okay. And so effectively your frequency is different for your photon. That actually is more... I prefer that. Yeah. I mean, the, intriguingly, because I was trying to... I was trying to read about this and trying to understand because it's way beyond my level of really <laughs> understanding physics where it gets all very blurry. Um, and we know that things like our GPS satellites, um, they see time slightly differently um, to we do as we do down here on Earth mm. um, and because of the speed at which they're moving. Um, so they effectively have got a gravitational um, relativistic effect which is causing the clocks on these things to move more slowly. Um, and in some ways, that's an independent verification of a gravitational redshift. Aren't their clocks ticking faster because of that? It might be that way around. Because yeah. they, they, there's two. They go slower because they're moving fast because they're in orbit, but they go faster because they're in a, a lighter gravitational potential than what we get on the surface. So the clock speeds up a little bit. And uh, I can't remember which one's bigger, but you have to correct for both of those things. Or GPS breaks after a few hours. So So, so I was intrigued because some of the things Jared said, things like, oh, this is the first independent measurement of gravitational redshift for this this star, for S2 as it's going around the black hole. Um, I was like, well, hang on, we're we're using GPS and that's got gravitational redshift effects equivalently all the time. So, So this was the argument was this was the first astronomical object to be shown to be experiencing okay. the redshift effect. So once you remove any Doppler-y stuff, you can actually see that gravitational redshift getting added on to that. Yeah. Which is, so essentially the star is changing colour because of the black hole's gravity. Yes. Okay, which cool. is awesome. And, and it's again, it's one of those things where, you know, black holes are, uh, they're still extremely, I don't want to say they're badly understood because they're not you know, we've got a lot of predictions. They're not well understood. No, and the trouble is it's extremely hard to test those predictions because mm. they're not, they're quite rare. Um, and they're also, they're hard to see by design. So you have to wait till something comes along and interacts with them. You either have to see a star going by them or you have to, sometimes you see something possibly we think maybe passing over a, you know, an accretion disk where there's material getting sort of transferred into them, which is the sort of thing you study. Mm-hmm. Um, but it means our, our ways to test black holes are quite limited. Um, so when the universe kind of literally throws a star towards one. It's like, oh, this is a laboratory and we can make, and there's one of the researchers was saying it was really exciting because it was, it was almost 
in astronomy, we very much often kind of go, here's our data set. Right. Now, what, what, what just happened? What are we seeing? Whereas yeah, this was something... You only get it once. Yeah. And, whereas, and also, it's, it's, a, it's not... It feels like bad science because it's... it's uh, you, you can't make predictions. Science should be predictive. We should say, this is what we think will happen. Here's our predictions. We go and test it. You generally quite hard to do that often um, in astronomy. Whereas this was a real example where they were able to make really precise predictions about what would happen, what measurements you'd get, and they got it. Um, which means that, okay, doesn't mean that gra- uh, general relativity is right, but it ain't wrong yet. It's passed another test. Passed another Einstein's test. just kicking back Tick. and relaxing. Yeah, yeah. it's fine. Um, so, pretty cool. So pretty just to double check, this is near-infrared observations to get through the dust. Is yes. that right? And then there is another thing that we, I think we briefly mentioned, which is the Event Horizon Telescope. But for that one, uh, that was all radio. It's all think. radio, yes. So that's a, a, a similar thing, except this time your telescopes are spread out over a, a very long distance yeah. um, to allow you to do actually trying to resolve the black hole itself. So that's, that's hopefully we'll find yeah. out results from that at some point in the future as well. But yeah, it's I'll, quite cool that everyone can do this. Like, yeah, I'm still it's, amazed it's, that we're lucky enough to see these stars at all. Or that they're there, because it becomes, as you say, that really good laboratory. And if you want to see the video, I think if you go to YouTube and you just uh, type in Sagittarius A star, uh, video or stars, or S2 is the name of the the crazy fast one. So type in any combination of that and you should find there's a beautiful movie now of these things going around in their orbit. And it's not just this one star, there's dozens. uh, And the further away ones are obviously moving slower, but the, the video itself, that's literally what's been happening at the middle of our own galaxy for the last couple of decades now, which is kind of cool. It's really exciting. And the observations are getting tidier now as well, so they're starting to look better and better. Yeah, and awesome. with that we can pin down the size of the black hole more mm-hmm. and we can try and therefore you know, make more quantitative predictions. As you say, that, those observations of the radio telescopes have been are ongoing. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't think they've yet processed the, the data. Um, so it's, you know, at some point we're going to have, well not at some point, but slowly over the next century we will build up a better idea about a black hole in the middle of our guys oh, i'm not sure i've got a century in me i need a lot of coffee for that <laughs> well i think we should probably go get a cup of coffee just now which was a good point to end the podcast so thank you very much for listening cheers all bye if you enjoyed this banter and you want to hear more from us follow us on facebook and twitter at all the key Astro. 